0: What's up, everyone? This is Gwen. This is JV. This is Chapoy, a.k.a. DJ
1: Shrimp. And you're listening to Millionaire...
0: Millionaire... Millionaire...
1: Interviews... Interviews... How's your day, Ben? Good. These are challenging dates. Yeah. You know, no question. Yep. Yeah. How so? We went from four people to 14. I mean, yeah, I can talk about a lot of this stuff, actually, uh, like what we're currently dealing with. I can talk about the story leading up to it and kind of what's different now and what's difficult now compared to, you know, a year ago. And yeah, it's actually an interesting experience because our revenue right now, if you told me that we would be where we are right now a year ago, I'd say, well, shit, I'm going to be super happy. And in reality, I'm... Um, stressed and not good enough at my job yet. I have to get better. And it's just a different set of issues. Yeah, no, I'm feeling you on that.
2: And yeah, it's the same thing with the podcast. It's like, I set these goals, I've been beating them all, but I'm like, I feel like I should be still doing better. I think that's what makes like an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur. But you have to
1: stay away from the unhealthy part comparing yourself and all that stuff. And it's hard. The lesson we learned in advertising is not to expect to be profitable right away. That was a good lesson in saying, well, here's how we need to improve it, but I'm not going to stop selling. And we learned a few really interesting lessons, uh, actually specifically about pricing when we did that. What did you learn about pricing then? So it is most likely not going to be easy but will be worth it. Austin, thanks very much for having me on. My name is Jordan Gall. I am the co-founder and CEO of CartHook and we make software for e-commerce stores. And our uh, our big product that has kind of taken off on us and that we're very focused on is a checkout funnel for Shopify. And what's a funnel for people who don't know? Yeah, we focus on the checkout experience. In our world, the checkout funnel is from the point in time that someone clicks buy. They've added something to the cart and then they hit buy or complete purchase, whatever the button says. But now they've gone into the checkout page where they start filling out forms. They fill out their name, their address, their payment information. And that's kind of where we take over. We provide a customizable one-page checkout, whereas the default Shopify checkout is three pages and not very customizable. And then what we do that's made us popular is we offer the ability to have post-purchase upsells in a funnel after the checkout page. So what post-purchase upsells are customers tag their products and then based on those tags they can show after the purchase offers so imagine this when you buy something normally you fill out the page you put in your pay information you hit buy and then you see a thank you page you see a confirmation that you've purchased when using our product the customer goes to the checkout page fills out the forms puts the payment info and hits buy but instead of seeing a thank you page next they see an additional set of offers and the beauty of that is that it does not interfere with the original purchase And then you can also capitalize on the fact that you know what they just bought, so you know what to offer them. And then the best part is that they don't need to re-enter their payment info. In order to take the offer, they just hit one button. So this was popularized in the digital commerce world first, and we're kind of bringing it over into the physical product universe with Shopify.
2: And I don't know if it's all right if I bring out competitors, I don't know if they are competitors, but I think I've heard ClickBank,
1: is that similar? I think what you have in mind is ClickFunnels. Yeah, so ClickFunnels really, popularized this concept. And really what it does is it increases the average order value. And when you have a higher average order value, you can spend more on ads, you can push harder, you can implement strategies like upselling into a subscription, it opens up a world of possibilities. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to give merchants more control over their checkout process. So it's not like we're geniuses that are pioneering this concept, but what we're doing is we are handing control over to the merchant. And usually in the e-commerce platform context, you have very little control over the checkout process. You can customize the site. You can make it look good. There are themes. There are designers you can hire. But where we come in is at the most critical part of an e-commerce store, the point where people actually give you their money. We think people need more control over that. That's what we're doing.
2: Was there a particular reason
1: that you got into this line of work? Yeah, that's a longer story. I think you know, that's what we're here for, for this podcast to, to kind of get into. That goes back... I think eight years now, (laughs) I ran an e-commerce business with my two brothers a long time ago, like uh, seven, eight years ago. And it was three of us. My older brother was responsible for bringing traffic to the site. I was responsible for converting that traffic. And my younger brother was responsible for everything after the sale, email customer service and so on. I basically just stared at conversion optimization for an e-commerce business selling physical products for a year and things went well. We went from like $200 the first month and then $1,200. And then it went to like four grand, 10, 20, 50, all the way up to like 75 grand a month. And then we sold the business. So that was my life, just optimizing an e-commerce store. And after selling the business, I wanted to get into software with a recurring subscription model. And can we talk before the
2: software business, kind of just the things you learned, how long was that company in
1: existence and, and what did you learn while you were doing it? Start to finish, it was like 14 months. I learned, it was an education. I really didn't know what I was doing at first. I learned a a number of things. The first was how to learn, how to identify, okay, I am deficient in this capacity. How do I get better? One of the most important things we did was, first, you read blog posts, and you read some ebooks and you attend some webinars and you start to learn it, then it starts to dawn on you how little you know and how far you have to go right so it's like okay first step it's going from ignorant incompetence to now you are conscious of your incompetence so one one level up what we did then to accelerate was really important so we set up the store in a way that we thought was going to be optimized And then we hired a consultant. And Tim Ash, I think is the name. He runs a company called Site Tuners. I think they're still around today. They've always been really good. And first we got his book. I am not like a math and science guy, at least not since, you know, middle school. And I didn't understand a word he was talking about. It was like the scientific approach to conversion optimization. But they did have a service where they would come in and talk to you about your site for an hour and record the conversation and send you the recording. It was 500 bucks. This is like eight years ago. The site is probably making like three or $400 a month at this point. So it seemed like a crazy investment, but that accelerated our learning so much. So we, we talked to them for an hour. They just tore us apart on what we were doing wrong. And then we implemented their changes. And that's when things started to click.
2: And what were some key things that they told you that you were doing wrong?
1: Uh, focus, meaning the visitor's focus. Like He called it the 10-foot test. I have a blog post on the Cardhook blog actually about this exact thing, the 10 foot test being on any page of a website, you should from about 10 feet away from the screen, you should know exactly where you're supposed to click. And if it's not clear, then you're confusing the visitor and you don't have a focus on your actual conversion point on your call to action. So things like that, where things on the page don't compete with one another, the focus on benefits over features, the ability to use something like live chat to learn where your page is deficient. So live chat people see as like a sales tool, but really it's better as a learning tool. The questions people are asking you over live chat. If for every one question, there's another 10 people that aren't asking it. So they're indicators. So when someone says, Hey, will this solar light reach my, you know, rooftop, whatever it is, that's what we were selling solar lighting products. That means that tells you what you need to put on the page in order to provide enough information for a visitor to make a buying decision. So we just started to combine the concept of colors and focus and information, benefits over features, how to learn on where we're deficient. And that's that learning process is what made the business successful. The story about that is kind of unexpected. We started selling solar lighting products. What we were really doing is looking over at some much larger competitors and we were mimicking their strategy. So CSN stores and Hayneedle, I forget the name net shops. They're now Hayneedle. So these are now really big companies in their early days. What they did was they had a, a large network of very, very niche stores. So the concept was a fisherman is more likely to buy fishing gear and to spend more money on that fishing gear when he's at a fishing store as compared to in the fishing aisle of a sporting goods store right? And online, you can implement that strategy pretty easily. You can just build a site that's only focused on fishing lures as opposed to having to build a sporting goods site. So that's what they were running with. And and we started following what they were doing and and identifying where they were spending money because that that was our indicator of they think this is working or it is working. And so we identified a few similar niches and we launched our own little network of four different stores. Our most successful store sold solar lighting products. When we first started selling it, we assumed, uh, hey, the only solar lights I know of are the ones that go on like your lawn or your walkway. So that's what we're gonna sell. That's what we put out front. What we didn't realize was that we didn't know what we were talking about. We didn't know who our buyers were. And they started telling us in funny ways. So we would get the same question over and over every day. And the question was, will this solar spotlight reach my flag? We were like, what in the world are you talking about? (laughs) What flag? We heard this enough to actually start paying attention. What people wanted to do was to light up their American flag with a solar light. And I'm from New York. I don't know anything about, you know, a situation where there's like no streetlights. But this is a really big country. And there is a quirk, not a quirk, there's just a feature of like the standards for the American flag that at night, you either bring it in or you light it up. You don't leave the American flag waving in the dark at night. I didn't know anything about this. But it turns out that some people have their flag very far away from their home or from electricity, and they need a solar-powered light in order to do it. So they started asking us enough of these questions that we said, all right, clearly this is an opportunity. And that's when we started selling solar flag lights and creating a category page and building our copy toward that problem and that solution and going out and finding manufacturers that had lights that were appropriate for it. And that's what made the business take off. So it's like all these little lessons are like, okay, here's how you optimize your site. Good. Then you need to actually listen to people and see what their problems are and what they're looking to solve. And then, you know, don't be thick and sell what you want to sell, sell what people are asking for. All these like larger business lessons, but on this very micro level, but that contributed to being able to generate sales. And once we were generating sales, then we could hire an AdWords person to turn on the gas. And that's when the business took off. So it was like all these little things getting lined up. From the ad, to the page, to the conversion, to the copy, to the right solution, the right customer, and then bang, once everything's working, you can pour gas in. I don't have a scalable internet business, so your podcast, your guest that you interview resonates a lot more, and uh, you know, you interview them very well, and uh, you're quite consistent, so you know, I, when I'm going for a drive, that's what I listen to.
2: Well, yeah, like I said, I appreciate it. So you're in Dubai?
1: Yeah, so it's the capital of the UAE.
2: He actually was in the Middle East. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know if he invests at all, but at least he can definitely point you in the right way and understand the stuff that you have to deal with.
1: Yeah, oh, that'd be awesome. Okay, yeah, I'll reach out to him.
2: So I helped, finally.
1: Yeah, just talking to you has uh, helped uh, help get my thinking going.
2: And how about after the ad, maybe actually even before that person, how were the people finding your site? Was it just optimized enough that a few people would come there and then chat with you in the chat window? Like, how did you figure it out?
1: We use paid ads, which are a great way to accelerate learning. If your site's not established and you're not getting links and traffic and SEO and credibility and so on, the fastest way to get in front of customers is just to pay for it. So back then, there wasn't Facebook and Instagram. It was all AdWords, but it was still cheap enough that you could make money. We experimented with it ourselves. And then once things started to go well enough, we then hired an expert. That was another really valuable lesson. The lesson we learned in advertising is not to expect to be profitable right away. That when you first start, you are the least optimized. So if you're anywhere near break even, you're in a good place because over time, you can optimize, you can change prices, you can bid on different keywords, you can do away with keywords that are wasting money and so on. That patient approach to, okay, we're gonna launch and we're just gonna bleed money for the first month. But if it's anywhere near profitable, then we know we just need to keep going and optimize it and improve. I still carry that lesson every day.
2: So over those 14 months, I guess you slowly just kept optimizing. It seems like just paying for that consultant helped speed all that up. And maybe the AdWords helped
1: speed these things up. At what point
2: did you get acquired? How did all that occur?
1: Yes. So the acquisition, it sounds glorious, right? (laughs) At the top line, oh, I sold it after a year. It was amazing. In reality, it wasn't actually that amazing. The reason that we sold the business, this is a very painful lesson. <laughs> the reason we sold the business is because it was painful to grow. So we had the solar store, we had a hammock store, we had an Adirondack chair store and an electric fireplace store, all these very weird niche things that are hard to find offline and that we could drop ship. And so what happened was as we got more successful, there was more and more pain in the business, specifically around customer service. Returns, shipping issues, manufacturing issues. There was a lot of pain. And we are ambitious people. You know, we come from an immigrant entrepreneur background. We have big dreams. And the three of us, myself and my two brothers, we require a lot of success in order to feel like we're successful. And, you know, we've got families and kids and everything. So what we saw was okay, this is cool. We're making 75 grand a month, but retail is retail. It's online, but it's retail. You're still taking home maybe 30%, 20%. 40, somewhere in that range. And so it's, you know, it's not that much money, especially split three ways. So we said, okay, that means in order to make some serious money, we're going to kind of have to 10X this thing. And you look over to the pain side of the equation, say, oh man, that's a lot of pain. Do we really want to do that? And that's kind of what started to make us tired in the business and not really look forward to spending five years on it and growing 10X. We started to look for an exit and contacted a broker And then within a week, had a buyer and then went through due diligence. And, you know, 45 days from the time we had the conversation and the idea, the business was sold. The painful lesson comes in, in between the two. So we had been talking about outsourcing our customer service for a while. The downside of that immigrant entrepreneur background is sometimes you get stuck in a mindset of doing everything yourself. And that led us to have that mindset and do a lot of that painful work ourselves. After we made the mental switch of, well, we're just going to sell this thing. Let's just call it a day. Let's take home some money and move on to the next thing. Once we made that mental switch, we became more okay with outsourcing. And we outsourced all of our customer service. We basically outsourced all the pain. And you know what happened to the business? Nothing. Everything stayed the same. Nothing went bad. We made the same money without any of the pain. Halfway into the acquisition process, we're looking at each other like, man, what did we do? Now it's like, now we're mentally switched off. We've got a buyer. We've got money dangling in front of us. But man, what a painful lesson. We could have grown it for another year, outsourced a lot earlier and made a lot more money. That hurt. And that's one of those things that sticks with you. So now any business I go into, it's with the mindset of, okay, maybe I do the painful part right now, but then I'm going to find someone else, not only to like, quote, take the pain away, but they're going to be better at it and they're not going to approach it as it's pain. They're going to approach it as this is my job. I'm a customer service professional and I'm really good at it. So that, that hurt, but that's how the acquisition kind of unfolded with a broker and with some painful lessons. Yeah.
2: And I guess about that point, is like, hey, if you hate doing your own bookkeeping, you own your own company, there's bookkeepers who love being bookkeepers, right? So you should outsource that and not worry about doing that all the time. Yeah. Sometimes you think you have to go through all these painful things and that
1: it's a requirement in order to have a company and, and it's not. Yes. Agree. One of the best things I've done in Cardhook in, in the software business now is find a company called Office Engine and they just do all of the back office. And it used to be the bane of my existence. Every letter from the state of Oregon, the state of New York and DC, and it would just put me in such a terrible mood every time I even interacted with a government entity. And then finding this company just made it all go away. It's crazy.
2: If you don't mind, we'll spend a few minutes talking about if someone actually built a company like yours and they want to sell their company too. Can you tell us about your experience, what you did wrong, what you did right looking back?
1: Yes, it was a bit of a surprise, actually, the way it unfolded. So first, a business broker for the lower range of businesses selling is the way to go, at least in my experience, in my opinion, and what I've learned since then. So I have a buddy, Thomas, who runs a company called FEI International. No, it's FE International. They're a business broker. Not only do they give you a dose of reality upfront to help you understand what your business is really worth in the open market, your chances of selling it and so on. That's very important right there to set expectations. But then that process gets hairy. I ended up being a lawyer basically for a month because we had good lawyers. But if you let your lawyer negotiate absolutely everything, you're going to pay a lot of money in legal fees. So the way our experience went was finding a broker that specialized in e-commerce. So he had A network of buyers who were interested in our specific business so it made sense and that's why he was able to find a buyer relatively quickly and then the reason that they actually acquired us was very interesting they were like an old-school company that wanted to get into e-commerce they had one or two sites and they were kind of struggling with it but wanted to keep investing in it and they came across us who were three three guys in their 20s who were running an e-commerce business with a modern approach with a software everything in the cloud Everything paid by the month, everything efficient. And the real reason they ended up acquiring us after doing a little bit of due diligence and looking under the hood it was really to take the way we were running the business itself and apply it across their organization. So they were doing everything old school with clunky software that you paid a lot for and consultants. And they kind of saw us using Google Docs, Gmail, in the cloud e-commerce platform. And that kind of blew their mind of like, whoa, this is valuable in and of itself. The process, let alone the actual asset that's producing money. That's one of those things where you never really know what an acquirer is after. Yeah, that was just one of those surprising pieces.
2: Yeah. Did they tell you, I guess, after you closed, that's how you figured it out?
1: Yes. While we were in due diligence where it was kind of a foregone conclusion, like they, they definitely wanted to do it. Now we just need to do the legal stuff. That was what they told us. They came over and said, guys, I have to tell you, this is amazing we've not seen this version of things. And this is going to be really important to our organization. I hope you guys feel like you're getting a good deal because we feel like we're getting a good deal between the income producing asset and learning from you guys. This is, we want to make it happen.
2: So did you stay on for another month or two afterwards to
1: teach them or how did that work? There was a period of time where we were like a 30-day period where we were very available and then it slowed down and we would you know, happily help them along the way over the, the course of the next year, but it wasn't anything too taxing. And then for one week after the sale, one of us went to their office and worked with them for a week and kind of showed them how we did everything. And then the next week you opened up Carthook with your brothers? The next week, I really went back to my family business and we ran that for about a year and then all looked at each other and said, so we love each other more than we love the business. And so let's just stop working together now (laughs) before things get any weirder. That was a good decision. What's the family's business? My father started a property tax reduction business back in New York and Long Island. So we represent residential homeowners to challenge their property taxes and then take a percentage of the tax savings for the first year. It's a direct mail marketing business. It's very cool. So I did that like in high school and then I joined after the sale. And then as soon as we kind of broke it up and said, look, Let's go our separate ways. It's better for us as a family. That's when I identified. I looked back at the e commerce experience and said, which pieces of software that we used am I jealous of? Who do I want to be? And one of those, the one I identified was a cart abandonment software. So, this is a piece of software that tracks visitors to the checkout page, captures their email address when they type it into the form on the checkout page. And then, if they don't complete the purchase, triggers an email campaign that's designed to bring them back to complete their purchase. So back then, it was a relatively novel idea. Now it's best practice, but that was a clunky piece of garbage, that software, but it still made us three, four grand a month. So I said, if I can make a better version of that, I knew what my mental process was every month looking at the books, as you look at line items to say, should we keep paying for this or not? That one was a no-brainer. That was, of course, we're going to continue to pay hundred bucks a month because it makes us three grand a month. So next, what else? It was one of those things where it was clunky. I never want to cancel it. And it is directly tied to your revenue. And I said, those are all the things I like. Let me build a better version of that. That's where Cardhook started.
2: You're talking about you divvied up the parts at your old company with your brothers. Was that your part? Was that your part of the cart abandonment from the old company?
1: Well, the we used someone else's software.
2: Yeah, but was that your that your part of the company? Is that why you knew it, it? exactly? Okay, right. So because, that, makes because, sense. that makes sense. Yep, I'm the guy
1: in charge of optimization and conversion, and so that was a conversion tool. So I was familiar with it.
2: So you pulled your experience from there, and then I guess just diving further. How much money did you need to get started? And was it just you? Let's just take it from day
1: one. Yeah. So I'm not a developer. So I'm a business marketing guy. I knew I needed technology built. So I looked at all my options. I talked to agencies. I talked to freelancers. I talked to a bunch of different versions of a technical partner. Eventually I got lucky. There's always luck at play, right? I was in San Francisco with my wife for like two months. We were doing this like travel thing where we checked out a bunch of different cities for a few months at a time. And then we finally settled on Portland where I am now as our favorite place. But San Francisco was the first place we went. And one morning going to the laundromat, I bump into someone that I'm like, you look very familiar. What is going on here? Where do I know you from? Turns out it's my wife's family friend from her hometown back in Connecticut. And we just kind of said, this is crazy. We should go out to dinner. You know, we're all here. So we did. And turns out he's a very talented developer. And we started talking and he started talking about, well, I've always looked for a business partner and haven't been able to find one that I really get along with. You need a technical person and maybe we should do a little project together. That turned out to be my best option between paying 20 grand for an agency to do it or like that. So it was basically you build it and then let me go sell it and I'll give you a piece of the company and then we'll see where it goes from there. That's how it got started. And that was 2013? Well, 2013? I think it's 2014. Yep. 2014. And then I ran it for a year with him before finding my now co-founder.
2: Did you save up a lot of money before if you were traveling with your wife from selling your other company? Because I don't think we heard how much you sold it for or, and I guess you're working with your family for a year too.
1: Yes. Yeah. We sold it for a few hundred grand. So nothing, nothing crazy. We did it up three ways. So, you know, a few bucks, but nothing, nothing crazy. I call it uh, game changing, but not life changing, <laughs> like good experience, but you know, right back to work. And then the family business I had worked on and the nature of that business is such that you do a bunch of work, you don't get paid really for a while later. So I basically had a year where I was getting paid for the work I had done a year prior. So between that and some consulting stuff and some little things, I was able to do that and the truth is our living expenses in the Northeast were pretty high. So to go on the road between Airbnb and co-working spaces, it really wasn't that much of a difference.
2: And that makes sense because I think a lot of people always think that, hey, it's going to cost too much for me to travel or do this or do that. But I mean, if you're smart about it, I mean, if you're not staying in the five star hotel and like looking at places that make sense, then you can really do anything for yeah, any
1: price. You really can. I mean, we had an amazing time. We had a kid. We had, our, we had a one year old. We had our two dogs and we would just find an Airbnb. And when you book Airbnb, especially back then for a full month, it's a lot cheaper. So we put all our stuff in storage and we we just set out. We did San Francisco, Berlin, Denver, Seattle, Portland, Miami, and then made a choice.
2: And was that the plan all along that you do all those and then figure it out? Yes. Or was it just kind of going month to month to figure out what you're going to stop when you wanted?
1: No, our plan was to find a place to move permanently. That's why we put our stuff in storage, like in one of those like pack rat things that could be shipped to us anywhere. So we just weren't sure. And we thought at worst, what's the worst that happens? We just go back to Connecticut, no big deal.
2: Yeah, I didn't know if you list of your top six. These are for sure our top six. We're gonna do exactly one month in each one. And then we'll just decide.
1: It was mostly planned out with with a bunch of wiggle room, but you have to plan ahead of time, especially with a kid. You can't stay in a bad neighborhood. You can't do, you kind of have to think it through to a degree. Makes sense. And then, well, let's
2: talk about how you're able to start cart hook. How much did it cost to get this thing started and take it from
1: day one? So I was fortunate enough not to have to pay anything for the initial development. I put up the funds for company creation and when we needed designers and some other stuff. So maybe a few grand, I don't know, five to 10 grand for getting everything set up and ready and put some money in the bank account and so on. And then it was basically handed over to me after two and a half months and said, okay, the product is good enough to go sell. At that point in time, I did cold outreach. Just, I went to Built With, which is a a service, a website that's a service that provides you lists of websites that use specific technologies. So we only built one integration for the Volusion platform, which is what I used to run my e-commerce site on. So I figured I could speak, you know, one-to-one with those people. And I got a list of called 30,000 websites that use Volusion. I would then rank them to see what was like currently ranked by Quantcast or Alexa, some type of indicator that they were worthwhile to pursue. I then sent that list over to a VA in the Philippines He would go through that and qualify. I had a set of qualifications, must be in US dollar, must be in English, must be selling physical products and like one other thing. And then that would then be handed over to someone else who would then search for an email address for each qualified site. I would then take that batch of emails and load it up into, oh man, Sales Loft. That was the name of the software. And then I would blast out you know, 30, 40 emails every single day with a sequence of, hey, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm offering. Do you wanna talk? And I just did that until I got people on the phone. And once I got people on the phone, I would tell them what I'm doing and who I am and what my background is. And some people said, sure, I'll give it a try. That's it. That's how we did the first 3,000 bucks in recurring revenue, just brute force.
2: And how long did it take to think that out, or and to have the virtual assistant go ahead and research all those yes nos, and then find the emails? That's what I was doing while Charlie was building up the app. Okay, so for the first couple of months, that's what. Okay, because it makes sense because it takes a long time to mm-hmm. get that stuff ready, and people don't. I don't think I always understand that. I used a very similar process when I was looking for commercial real estate loans who actually owned the building and basically had a SharePoint list that they added their information in. It took at least a few months just to get everything ready before I started. And I use the exact same process that you use. It's, it's funny. I mean, I built my own CRM, but it was basically take that, load it up, blast 100 emails. And then I've had them kind of customized so it doesn't look like that regular MailChimp or something like that. And then have them call me because I don't want to spend all day calling Like if they're not going to return. And then if they don't return that first email, then just keep doing sequences and then once they're calling me, that's warm and it's much yes. easier because they seem like they're happy if they're, they're calling you. Yes,
1: I forget the names of the courses from back then that even talked about it. I remember Breakthrough Email was one of them. They yeah. had like the, the appropriate person template. I mean, you know, now.
2: Dude, I use that exact same one. That's so funny uh-huh. that, you know, so you know about it too. I, yeah, I think there's name Ari Galper or something. Mm-hmm. I think early 2000s when I started using his thing about the sales, the way to use it yes. properly. Not just go, hey, this is what I do. It's like trying to see if you're fit
1: and see if it makes sense, right? Yeah. So it, it was popularized back then. And now you have to adjust and you have to do things differently in a more sophisticated way. But back then, that was the tactic that worked. mm mm-hmm.
2: It still makes sense to kind of use that tactic I was saying, but I feel like almost everyone, once everyone starts kind of using the same sales language, I've noticed that everyone likes to say if we're a good fit now. And I'm like, oh, that's the language I used to use. I'm like, I got to find something yes, else now. If yes. y'all are and, do it, right. Some people do like,
1: the which one happened to you? You're not interested? You're not interested right now? Or C, you got eaten by a bear. We should call for help. Like everyone's...
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, funny, yes, guy, yes, funny guy. Funny yes. guy. quote unquote. Right. But
1: hey, it worked and it got me in front of people. It got me into conversations. It got me listening to what people want and don't want from the product. That was the start of the process of, okay, here's what we have right now. Here's what we need to build up to in order to keep growing.
0: So you may have heard that there are other entrepreneur groups out there that can help you feel a little less lonely. Ones like EO Vistage or YPO. But why join any of those when you can get all those benefits at a fraction of the price? How? Well, join our Patreon membership. You've heard from some of our members how much of a steal our Patreon membership is. So here's some cold, hard numbers for you. In year one with EO, you're going to spend 4,900 bucks. For Vistage, you're paying $18,810 for your first year. And for YPO, you're shoveling out $7,050 for your very first year. For our gold Patreon membership, you're getting it at less than 30 bucks a month. Let that sink in. Again, our gold membership is less than 30 bucks a month compared to those other guys that cost 4,900 bucks, $18,810, and $7,050. So if you're on the fence, join today before I act like a smart businessman and I raise prices. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.
2: Did you know how much you were going to try selling it for? How do we figure out from there once you finally get, tell us about your first
1: sale. My first sale is funny. I'm still in touch with a guy. My first sale was hit send 30 seconds later, I get a phone call. So it wasn't the first time I, I sent out the email, but this particular send, I remember I was in Seattle in a co-working space called like nomadic something. I hit send. Phone rings, I'm like, whoa, I'm not even ready. And the guy is cool as hell. He's like, all right, I like you, I like this, it's cool. Let's give it a try. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> try to think in my mind, how do I even onboard someone? But he gave it a try. He was kind of forgiving in the process because I was just transparent of like, hey man, you're my first, like, let's, let's do this together, we'll hook it up. Pricing, I've always been really, really focused on. Everything I do, I try to make expensive. And not because I think I'm like, awesome, but it's because I am acknowledging that this is going to be really hard to acquire customers and you need as few customers as possible to hit your mark of this is what I need in order to continue the business. I priced it relatively high and I priced it based on revenue. And that was not normally done back then. It was like 29 a month and 49 And I was like, no, if you recover more than $1,000, bucks, i am charging you $100. So that, that was the... The truth is, there's a little wrinkle in the pricing mechanism that I used for the first like 20 customers. And what I did was I did a cap. I'll cap your pricing at $100 a month, and if you don't process more than a thousand bucks, I'll charge you 10% of the revenue. So if you recover 300 bucks, I'll charge you 30. If you recover 800 bucks, I'll charge you 80. If you recover $2,000, I'll cap it at 100. And what that did—that made it a no-brainer. So everyone was like, well, how can I say no to that? And that was the whole point. I just needed some proof. I needed some people saying, yes, I'm willing to pay for it. We then switched that to flat pricing because that's not healthy for the business, but it got things rolling.
2: Healthy for your business or healthy for their business?
1: Uh, having that variable pricing was not healthy for us. We needed consistency. But that, you know, I saw that as like phase two. Like First, let me see if I can get 10 people to say yes and actually give me their credit card. And that, that was the first test to pass before trying to say, how do I get the 5,000 bucks a month?
2: Getting those customers, what were you learning? Was there any hiccups in the software? And I guess, yeah, just walk me through after the first couple sales,
1: what you were learning. We learned a ton. We learned about what people wanted. We learned about where our limitations were on what we were willing to do versus not. I always like to talk about this with other entrepreneurs, that there's always the reality and then there's your perception. And one of the best points of reality is people currently paying you for what you currently have. Because that tells you that the truth is, you don't actually need anything new to make more sales. You're conjuring in your head that you need this feature, and this integration, you need to be better, you need to be as good as the competition, but if there are people paying you right now for what you currently have, then anything else is an excuse other than going out and selling. Like, yes, you need to improve your product, but don't tell me that you can't add any more revenue because there are already people paying you for what you have. That was a good lesson in saying, well, here's how we need to improve it, but I'm not going to stop selling. Just sell, 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 and learn and improve along the way. The first like, big, painful lesson that forced us to adjust was we had Volusion integration and we're selling to them successfully with that cold email outreach. Then we said, ooh, this is working. This is so exciting. Look at all these other platforms. We're, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be easy to get to that first 10K month. The second we moved off of Volusion and tried the same cold outreach tactic to Magento stores, totally flat, nothing. And that's because Magento stores are bigger companies. And so Volusion, you email the you know, support at website.com and the owner is reading it and the owner's responding. When you do the same thing for a Magento store, a gatekeeper is reading it, not the owner, not the decision maker. And you can't get to the decision maker without more. So that forced us to adjust our sales strategy that put us into a position to find the sales strategy that would help us take off to the next level. And that was integrations.
2: And what do you mean by
1: integrations? Okay,
2: so... And one second, if you don't mind. Sure. I'm going to say, dude, what I... Felt the exact same way when I was finding commercial real estate clients. Is that if I was calling or you know emailing a company, even though it might be his personal email address that we found, it might be a company that owns a hundred plus properties. If that's the case, I'm never getting email back or a call back. But if it's a guy who might own five to ten properties, I know that's my golden. That's who I'm looking for because that guy's gonna respond right back to me. Yeah, it's definitely different based on who your customer, even though you think it might work just the same. That little bit of difference can make a
1: big difference. Right. And not to be discouraged by a campaign failing. That doesn't mean the next campaign won't work if you make a little bit of an adjustment.
2: So you're thinking when this happened, you're like, I need to focus on integrations at that point? Or is it just kind of, you found that out by
1: luck? We kind of stumbled into it. Well, we were open to additional channels. We said, okay, the cold outreach, direct sales is cool. Got us our first like 3000 bucks a month. Now, what's gonna take us to the next step? And if direct outreach isn't it, then let's be on the lookout for other things. What happened was, we started getting emails from from merchants using other e-commerce platforms, saying, hey, can you do an integration with XYZ platform? Because I would love to use your software, I heard good things about it, and if you do an integration, then I'll use it. So we'd say, okay, and then we would do another integration. eventually what dawned on us that the right approach was wasn't just to do an integration but it would be to partner with the platform itself so there's a platform out there for subscription businesses called cratejoy when we first bumped up against them and people started asking us for integration they were a startup also now they're like more established they're doing really well but when we talked to them it was like five people so we had a few of their customers come to us asking us for an integration we then took that credibility of someone that currently uses their platform. And we brought that to them and said, hey, your customers want what we're doing. Why don't we do an integration and then you can announce it to the rest of your customers. And they said, actually what we'd really like to do because everybody keeps asking us to do it and we don't want to build it because we know it's complicated is we would just like to offer you as a built-in integration into our platform. And that's when it hit, we said, okay. So we're going to build it in such a way that it's built into your platform. Every time someone creates an account on Cratejoy, they're already going to have a CartHook integration done. All they're going to have to do is copy and paste their CartHook ID number and they're done. So we did a deeper integration. And not only that, but they built us into their dashboard. So when someone logs into their Cratejoy account, one of the options is set up your CartHook abandoned cart campaign. And that created a flywheel. That created a you do it integration. You do work for a few weeks. And then, boom, three, four, five customers every single day, as they were taking off, they were just sending us customers. So that's what dawned on us. Okay, we need to do more integrations like that. Then we would approach platforms in a different way, saying people want it. Here are a few examples of customers of yours that want to use it. Here's what's worked with Cray Choy. You get value this way. We get value that way. And that's how we built up to the next level.
2: And how were you able to figure out the pricing for that versus going direct to the customer? We kept it the same. Okay.
1: We would maybe give an additional incentive of like a longer trial or some like not made up incentive, but something that didn't cost us money. Something that was valuable, but didn't didn't cost money.
2: Three free weeks and a one-hour yep. tutoring session on how to use it. Exactly right. Something like that. So at what point did you figure that out? What year are we talking about if we're looking at your timeline?
1: That's about six months in. So what happened was my original co-founder that built the product, about six months in, we're at like that $3,000 a month range. He gets his dream job offer. The company is not making enough for me to make a full-time living, let alone the two of us. The only reasonable thing was to say, my man, take that dream job. I mean, it does not make sense for you to turn this down when this is is what you really want to do with your career. So he took the job. And then all of a sudden, I'm on my own. No, he was still really cool and helped me on nights and weekends, but it was not to the same extent. And so I had a six-month period of just by myself, trying to figure it out. To have a co-founder,
2: it seems like a lot of people, they want the co-founder almost just to have someone to back. Obviously, you'd hope that they're really good at what they do, right? And that he helps you with that. But at least you have someone to socialize with at that point. But then I guess after that, if he's leaving to go get his dream job and then you're left there, yeah. it seems like that might stink. Did he give you back your 50% or what? How did that work with equity? No,
1: it, it was never 50%. It was a fair split, but I, I had the vast majority. No, And he kept it. And that was the right thing to do. And he committed to continue to help, which he did. I was fine with it i was old enough at that point i had a kid i was i was not about to yeah <laughs> slow down or anything yeah some of the younger kids yeah you can get really heard about that i can understand that but yeah i was fine on that and i had i had already done several other startup ventures and i had done investment banking which was so painful i was i was fine with pain or whatever okay so those six months i got it to like five thousand bucks a month and i really didn't know what to do with it i didn't know is this like what i'm going to do full time Should I do consulting stuff? I really wasn't sure what it was. And then I got a very interesting email out of the blue. I got an email that all of us should get more of. Hi Jordan, this is blank from blank company. We are interested in a strategic acquisition of Cardhook because it lines up well with our product roadmap. I said, ooh, that's nice to wake up to. (laughs) So by coincidence, it was a relatively well-known entrepreneur. So it was cool just to get an email from someone that I recognized. That didn't really end up going anywhere. The company was only doing $5,000 a month. They were not going to offer enough for me to say yes. But what it did is it created a little bit of momentum, a little bit of outside credibility. So I was in New York at that time visiting friends and family. And I told them about the acquisition offer. And all my buddies from college who had stayed in finance, like good, smart Jewish boys from New York do, and they made a lot of money. So their response to me was, man, don't sell it. It's too early. Like, I'll put in some money. You should go for it. And I heard that once, and then I heard it twice, and then I heard it a third time, and it dawned on me, it sounds like I have a chance to raise money for my little software company. What that did is it clarified things. It said, do you want to do this or do you not want to do this? Because once you take friends' money, it's no longer like a little, well, maybe I'll keep it up or not. It's You're committed. So at that point in time, I saw the opportunity to raise money, and then I knew very quickly no one's going to raise money for a software company that doesn't have a technical person in the company. I said, all right, I need a technical co-founder. And that's when a little bit more luck hit. I saw a funny sounding email address, sign up for my lead magnet on the site, Ben at skinnyandbald.com. Said, all right, who is this guy? So I check him out, his name is Ben Fisher. Obviously he's my current co-founder now, but I I didn't know who he was, I checked him out, he'd done some impressive stuff. So I got him on the phone and we had a little courtship and I basically told him, look, You know, I've got some friends who want to put money in. If you want to join me, maybe you bring money from your network. And, you know, we we give it a go. We tested things out for a month working together and then decided that, yes, in fact, we did want to get married and be co-founders and raise money together. That's kind of what started this version of Cartook, the the more, more serious approach to it. That was two and a half years ago.
2: Then it's just the two of you at that point before you raise the money? Correct. Okay, and then you raise the money and then can you tell us how that's changed as much
1: as you can within the last couple of years? Sure, it changes everything, but it doesn't change the business fundamentals. It needs to be a profitable company. All investment does is it gives you a little more breathing room and some more people to either ask for advice and also to put pressure on yourself because you're now being watched in public which my tendency is to like sit around and sleep. That's what I would like to do naturally. Uh, so any outside influence and outside pressure is good for me. So that really, really helped. It felt like performing in public. You know, you said inv- investor updates and people are keeping up to it. And all of a sudden you just have a lot more pressure. And Ed personally, I do better with that. So we raised a little bit of a little round just friends and family. Our approach was always to thread the needle between getting funding but not getting institutional money because institutional money takes away your optionality, right? There's only one thing to do with institutional money, which is to either raise additional institutional money or sell for a very big number or you failed. And we wanted the option of having a successful, profitable business be a success, not be a failure just because it can't sell for $100 million or more. So we raised friends and family money instead of institutional. And that got us going. It was just the two of us. Then eventually we found our lead developer, who's our VP of engineering now. We found a second developer and we kind of got to work on building up the product, doing these integrations, improving things. And that got things up to like the 20000 a month range.
2: Basically, after you got that funding, would you say it's just been slow incremental changes or was there anything else that really has helped you spur your growth? And how many, I don't know if we touch on it, but what's the size of your company today
1: and about general revenues? In January of 2017, it was the four of us. And currently, at the end of 2017, it's 14 of us. It was a big growth year. Uh, so things went slow and steady until they went really, really fast all once.
2: And that... And yeah, you kind of mentioned that. What, so what have you learned over the past year in dealing with that?
1: We took a really big risk. What we saw was that the market that we were in for card abandonment, was going to be really tough to build a healthy company. The competition started coming in, pricing started to get pushed down. We were kind of lost in the middle where we weren't a really cheap option. That was a no-brainer for anyone, but we weren't an enterprise option with all the bells and whistles. So we identified a new opportunity that we came across. And in doing the integration with the Shopify platform, what we noticed was that the Shopify checkout is extremely rigid. And going back to many years prior, the same reason I found the cart abandonment problem at all was because I was so focused on checkout conversions. So now it was the same thing. Now I'm staring at the Shopify checkout saying, wait a minute, it's three pages. It's extremely rigid. I bet there's a huge amount of demand for a customizable version of this checkout. And then we had a decision to make are we really gonna take our little four person company and split it up and build a second product because that's very risky or should we stick with exactly what we're doing? And ultimately we ended up taking the big risk and we ate dirt for many months getting the product to work well. And then as soon as it did, fortunately we were right in our estimation of the market demand. And ever since it's been released, it kind of exploded on us. So back to January, 2017, our checkout product was processing $5,000 a day. And December 2017, we are now processing a million dollars a day. A very large amount of growth in a relatively short amount of time, our revenue has kind of gone up proportionally.
2: And when you're taking those months off and trying to integrate it with Shopify, I guess, did they know? Did they care? And I guess, how different was it than some of the other stuff you had done? It seemed like it wouldn't be too much more difficult. For me, I have no technical background it was a lot
1: more difficult and, and a lot more complex. And if I had known how difficult and complex it would have been, I don't know if we would have pursued it. It is a checkout product that handles payments. So right there, you can just stop right there and understand not how much more complex it is, but how much higher the sensitivity is of your customer. If we screw up an email campaign, we say we're sorry. If we screw up a checkout page, All of a sudden, we're costing you money. So the tolerance is so much lower that you have to get everything right. And for a small software company, that's just not an easy thing. So it took a really long time to get it right. And we learned a few really interesting lessons, uh, actually, specifically about pricing when we did that. What did you learn about pricing then? When we first launched the product, we launched it for $100 a month. And we just got a mountain of signups in the first 30 days. And all of them ran away screaming after we put them through a conveyor belt of torture with our product that wasn't ready for prime time. So we said to ourselves, okay, how do we slow things down? We don't want to take it off the market, but how do we slow things down? So what we did was we first removed the option to start a free trial. We then removed that button and said, schedule a demo. So effectively, you're going to have a conversation with us before you even see the product. And that's important for building up the relationship and making sure it's the right type of qualified customer and so on. The other thing we did that we presumed would slow down demand was we tripled the price, the 300 bucks a month. The funny thing that we learned was we got the pricing wrong because demand didn't change at all. So we could still be offering for $100 a month and we would be making a third of the revenue that we're making. That was a very good lesson in, well, we we got that completely wrong and good thing that we found out. So now is it 300 bucks a month? Now it starts at $300 a month. And we have customers paying us, you know, from that all the way to several thousand bucks a month.
2: And hiring all these people, do you have any um, suggestions or thoughts for someone who's maybe going to experience rapid growth on what to do and how to do it properly?
1: I just recently read an article that articulated it very well in this environment when you start off with just one or two people. The general concept was as CEO, your job is to identify what the most important role in the business is. So, right, what we talked about back in 2014, 15, it was sales. If you don't get sales, the business is dead. Therefore, I should be working on sales. But as soon as that function gets going, you should hire someone better than you at it, give them the reins, and then look around and say, okay, what's the next most important thing in the business? Oh, right now it's product. Let me go over to product. And then keep moving off of things that way. So that's what we've done over the past year. When it was just the four of us, I was on sales and support and marketing. And so the first thing I needed to do was hire someone in support that was better than me at it, make sure that our customers were happy and taken care of. And then I got to move over to sales. And once that started going, then I moved over to marketing. And then that moved over to customer success. And we just kind of built out a team based on what is necessary in the business with me moving more and more and more out of the way. How do you hire a good sales guy? Sales is one of those things that we've, we've left out because we thought that marketing was more important for us than sales for right now. So right now I still do the sales when it's a bigger customer, it still goes up to me. But right now, the success and failure of the business is not dependent on sales. It's much more dependent on marketing, support, success, and then obviously technology and product.
2: For someone who doesn't know, how do you kind of define the differences between like the marketing versus sales? I guess I understand in general terms, but I'm just trying to understand how you think about it in your head,
1: what's considered quote unquote marketing and what's considered sales? Yeah. Well, one of the things I've learned over the past year that I'm not nearly as awesome as I thought I was, and I know not nearly as much as I need to know. <laughs> so all of this is with a grain of sand and with a... A a filter of this is what is true for us. So in our company, the difference is it's almost like marketing drums up interest and trials while sales identifies those leads that require an additional layer of help or of sales. So we have some big customers on the platform. So when a lead comes in, whether it's an opt-in or a trial, and it's a big, hairy customer, we shouldn't just not talk to them and hope that our onboarding just does its job. A salesperson should reach out to them and say, hi, this is who I am. Let's jump on a call. So that's when we see sales as taking over. But marketing is it's what's drumming up that larger pool of interest. So some people come in, sign up, pay us. We never talk to them. Other people, they kind of knock on our door and say, hi, we are special and we would like a conversation with your team and our team and so on. And and that's the sales function. And then it gets weird because there's a success function that does a lot of sales like stuff, but it's after the trial. So I think each company needs to define the roles themselves There's a general kind of approach to it, but we're still figuring out exactly where our lines are, where the blurry points are, where the handoffs happen. And how do you keep track of all that information for your company? It's one of the more challenging things. Mm We have our database of customers, but in order to pull valuable information from it, we have a variety of systems and we try to minimize the number of different tools that we use.
2: Yeah. I'll say that's the number one thing. Because there's tools that can do everything, but then it's just like, man, you could have 50 different tools and then you just don't even
1: feel like touching any of them. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's tough. But what we currently have, I'll start off at the top of the funnel and work our way down. At the top of the funnel, let's just say we do Facebook ads and webinars and some content. So that filters into people who sign up for, for, let's say, our email service. We use Drip. So there's a bunch of information in there. And we have a bunch of tags that are based on things in the database and so on. A repository of data in Drip. Then when they sign up for a trial, we have our internal database. And we've built out some internal tools that make it easier for our team to identify who these people are, what their history is, how much money they've processed, how much money they pay us, make it easy to change their Stripe plan from a dashboard instead of logging into Stripe. So we have like our own internal dashboard and internal like a tool. Then we have PipeDrive drive for our CRM to make sure that these VIP customers, we don't lose track, that we keep an eye on them. And I think we might be moving over to Insightly on the CRM front. Then we have something called sales machine for our customer success that helps us identify key metrics and then identify changes over time in those key metrics for each account that gives us warnings of when an account is in a healthy position or a poor health position. And when certain things happen, it triggers tasks for our success team to say, this person has gone down in revenue process for more than two weeks in a row. Give them a call or send them this email template. So sales engine handles like that customer success function. And then we use Intercom for certain things in communication that's inside the app. We use Front for our customer support. And Front is this amazing software that creates like a presentation layer on these different communication channels. So it's just one tool, but it handles everything from tweets, to Facebook mentions, to emails, to chats on the website. And the customer support people see it all as one tool, as one consistent way to do things with one ticketing system, that's been a huge, huge help. Yeah, so it's like this amalgamation of a bunch of different tools. Yeah, it's, it's tough tough to coordinate.
0: I belong to this international organization, and you get once a month meeting, we all get together, and I've gotten frustrated because I go in there, and everybody's just kind of scooting over the top of everything, and we're sitting there nodding our heads like we know what they're talking about. There's no details to it. For me, it's $700 a month, and it's hard to justify, you know? Honestly, I feel like that I've got 10 times more out of listening to your meetings.
2: <laughs> so since you're the, like the optimization guy, did you come up with all these processes to do that and, and like come up with the ideas to hook them up? Because again, it who knows, I, you might have named at least eight tools yeah. <laughs> right there, right?
1: Yeah. It's a lot of it is as needed. My co-founder, Ben, is the tools guy. He knows every tool and, you know, is like a religious product hunt, wake up and like, you know, do the davening for the product hunt gods. So he's just much more familiar. He's also a hacker that can like put these things together to trigger things. Yeah. He's much more technical on that front. The real value I'm adding is making sure that everyone gets paid. That's like really my highest order, <laughs> that there's enough money in the bank always for people to get paid. And then it's identifying what the market wants. That's it. That's the value of that. And like partnerships and some sales and that sort of thing. But As long as we're building stuff that the market wants, things go in the right direction.
2: And thank you for sharing all those tools because sometimes we just talk about the story and not these actual things that can actually help somebody in their business. So really appreciate that. Looking back, is there one thing you want to leave all of our listeners with? Hopefully entrepreneurs starting their own business or thinking about it. What's the last word you want to leave
1: with them? It is most likely not going to be easy, but will be worth it. I don't know how much more advice I'm comfortable giving than that. Everyone's situation is different. But the one thing I find that's common is it's not easy and yet it's worth it. And raise your prices. (laughs) In the spirit of Patrick McKenzie, I don't know if you know Patrick, Patio11 online. That's his mantra. Raise your prices, raise your prices. And that one underlying foundational fact is directly related to all the success and runway and the ability to hire people, you got to charge. And if you're building something that people won't pay for, then maybe you shouldn't be building something that people won't pay a lot of money for. Good last words.
2: If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out and say thanks? Sure.
1: I'm, I'm at Jordan Gall on Twitter and just Jordan at CartHook.com to say hi. And I'm in Portland, Oregon, in case there's uh, anyone out there that is a great community of entrepreneurs here in Portland that are very open, very easy to get in touch with people. Yeah. So anyone wants to say hi, feel free. We'd love to hear from you. All right, Jordan. Well, thank you for doing the interview. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on.
2: If you're looking for other tech-based interviews, then consider Episode 60 with Cam Duty, Episode 55 with Thorn Rodriguez, or... Episode 50 with Max and Pedro from Winding Tree.